Yeah, well, listen, I, I didn't come here to do math. <laughs> I'm here to expand your brain. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hey, Matt. Hi. The, Stuart, you're back. Yeah, I just wanted to interrupt you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Internal Medicine Podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. For your brain hole. For your brain hole. That's, that's right. Uh, hi, Paul. Are you here? <laughs> yeah, still with you. Oh, hi, Paul. <laughs> Paul, uh, I've been dying to ask you this question because I keep forgetting. Um, where are we at with the movies here? Yeah, you're killing me. Uh, I, I think uh, I'm up to 113 movies, and I can't remember how many days there are in the year, so I feel like I'm like 20 days behind at this point. So, uh, I'm pretty sure in month five you're behind. Yeah, well, listen, I, I didn't come here to do math. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, I have some catching up to do. Any any picks uh, from, the, from the recent movies you've watched that you can recommend to the audience? Yeah, and it's I, even a relatively family-friendly one for a change. Um, rather than sort of crim- criminally nihilistic. But I, I saw, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, it's the movie Hunt for the Wilder People. I've never even heard of it. Well, I'm here to expand your brain holes. Um, okay. It's, it's directed by this guy, Taika Watiti, uh, who is a New Zealand director. He actually directed the movie What We Do in the Shadows, which is also a really funny sort of mockumentary about vampires, which is completely different from this one, about a, basically a foster kid um, and his... Uh, sort of new father figure who sort of roamed through the New Zealand wilderness to escape uh, protective services. And it's much, much funnier than it sounds. Um, it's sort of quirky without being unbelievable and beautifully shot. And just, it's a, a delight. So I, and it's d- actually heartwarming as it compared to most of the depressing movies I like. So. Where, where can I find this? It's, you can, it's actually, you can stream it through uh, Amazon. Okay. I, I have Amazon. It, it has four and a half stars. I, and it came out last year, apparently. Yeah, it's relatively. It was actually it had a, a huge release in New Zealand, for whatever that's worth. But in the states, obviously, probably not quite so comparable. So, like five people watched it. <laughs> well, six now. Six, <laughs> got it. Okay. Well, I, I did see the uh, whatever that Shadows movie. I can't remember the full title, but that that one is pretty funny. That it's a mockumentary about vampires and what was it, that one? they're what like was roommates and fighting over dirty dishes, right? Okay. okay Paul? What, what's yes. it called? Correct. I miss it. Uh, how we live in the shadows, how or what we, we do in the shadows. What we do in the shadows. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah. Shadows. Stewart, any uh, anything you'd like to make the audience aware of? I feel like I need to be equal. So, uh. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, only the, this thing I stumbled across just literally moments ago, and I want the audience to take a look at it and tell me uh, how useful or not useful this is. It's <laughs> so uh, a raging wick. endorsement from Stuart Brigham. That's right, raging <laughs> endorsement indeed. Uh, Wikem w i k e m dot org Wikem dot org. It looks like it's like a an online Wikipedia for emergency medicine. Um, that's I did a search for the uh, the the Heinz exam, or the Hence exam, and it, that's where I found this at. But uh, it looks like it's it's a uh, maybe an open source. I don't know, up to date sort of thing. Take a look at it. Tell me what you think. <laughs> And, it, and if any of the listeners want to create one of those for internal medicine, that would be Ooh, let's make one for the outsiders awesome. right now. Uh, okay, Stuart, uh, oh, let's no. let's let's focus here. So, sorry this this episode that we're we're introducing right here was recorded at the 2017 ACE Congress in Austin, Texas, which is just nice. right up the road from from where I live. And uh, it was a wonderful conference. Thank you, ACE, for inviting us there to do interviews. 
sorry to Stuart and Paul that you didn't get to yeah. come with me to they had the a conference. 33% success rating. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what you're referring to. One out of three of us went. One out of three. That's that true. Math. Yes. But uh, the people at ACE were, were excellent in uh, setting us up with some great interviews and uh, a lot of future contacts made for other interviews. And since most of a lot of primary care is endocrine topics, this is very, very helpful to the audience. So on this episode, I sat down with Dr. Richard Aukus. He's a professor of pharmacology and internal medicine in the Division of Metabolism, Endocrinology, and Diabetes at the University of Michigan, where he is also the director of the Endocrinology Fellowship Program. Dr. Aukus has published widely over 200 journal articles and book chapters. He is an absolute expert on the adrenal gland. And on this episode, we were talking about endocrine clinical cases of endocrine hypertension, which is a very high yield topic, higher yield than I, than I thought it was, mm-hmm. Stuart. And without further ado, here is the discussion with Dr. Richard Aukus. I think that's okay for an intro. Yeah, it's not bad. You were under a lot of pressure. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto. I am without my usual co-host today, but I am happy to bring you Dr. Richard Aukus. Pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you, Dr. Aukus. And Dr. Aukus is a professor of pharmacology and internal medicine in the division of endocrinology at the University of Michigan. He is also the director of the fellowship program there. And we've asked him on the show today to talk about to talk about cases of endocrine hypertension. I think this is a very important topic. So thank you, Dr. Aukus. Good to be here. And I wanted to ask you up front, just so our audience can get a sense of who you are, I always give the example, uh, I, I want to know if you had to uh, describe yourself in a one-liner like we do in the hospital. So I'll, I'll give you my one-liner. I'm 34 years old. I'm a husband. I'm a father of four. I'm an internal medicine nerd, and uh, I love bad movies. I have very weird eating habits. Uh, can you can you tell me a little bit about you? So, uh, boy, one-liner. I guess I'd say that I am a 56-year-old father of three who is a triathlete in his spare time and who does uh, endocrinology on the side. And um, I'm a steroid biochemist by training, and I've taken that from the lab into the clinic. Very cool. Very cool. Triathlete. So you're practicing what you preach as an endocrinologist. Yes. That's great. Uh, a question that we like to ask everybody, This we have some mentorship aspect to the show, what is some, as, as a learner or as a teacher, what is some great advice that you've gotten that you can pass on to our audience? Well, I think um, it's good to have role models. I think it's good to identify people that you say, wow, I want to be like that person, and then uh, ask them sort of, you know, what they did to become successful and emulate their techniques. So I think I've, I've emulated um, the best aspects of multiple people along the way, you know, the best teacher, the best scientist, the best writer, um, and, you know, sort of morph that into what I want to be. If if you've ever read The House of God, the fat man was not actually one person. There was a dominant character, but there were a number of things from other people that were brought into it. So I'm sort of my own, I don't know, skinny man <laughs> that, uh, that has been uh, the com- combination of people who've made an effect on me. Great. That's 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 really helpful. And I wanted to ask as a last question, what, can you tell us something interesting about yourself, something that we won't forget? Um, 
so I was uh, on the MIT golf team uh, for okay. two years. Yeah, very diverse background. <laughs> are you still? How are you? How's your golf? Uh, score I now? don't have enough. I don't have much time. It's either training or golfing, and <laughs> I can't really do both. Maybe as now that I'm getting into you know the twilight of my life, I may wind up spending some more time golfing because I need to take a few more days off from training. So. All right. Uh, well, so I, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe in the future, golf, uh, g- golf can be an aspirational thing for now. Yes, right. <laughs> okay. Well, to to start off this talk, I wanted I wanted you to tell us your the title of your talk for ACE is called "Clinical Cases of Endocrine Hypertension." Can you? Uh, we have a primary care audience uh, everywhere from medical students all the way up to attending physicians. So, can you start with like a basic explanation of of what we should think of and what what that title refers to? Right. I think when people think about endocrine hypertension, they, their first thought is pheochromocytoma. But that's a rare disease, maybe one in 10,000. And they don't think about primary aldosteronism. And if I could only make one point today is that primary aldosteronism is not a rare disease. It's a common disease. Uh, it, it affects uh, uh, probably about 8% of all people with hypertension. And so uh, if you have a dozen people in your practice with hypertension, which I'm sure you do, you probably have one or two that you haven't diagnosed with primary aldosteronism. And it really makes a difference when you diagnose these people. So that's what I would focus people on is to get out of your mind that it's a rare disease. It's a common disease. And yes, you should be looking for it. How would you define resistant hypertension? Right. So resistant hypertension is when people are on three drugs, a maximum dose, including a diuretic, and still have a blood pressure that's over 140, over 90. And I think we see a lot of uh, pseudo-resistant hypertension where the patient is either just not adequately treated, they're on three drugs but not the right drugs or not at high doses, or they're just not taking their medications or you're not getting good readings, et cetera. But when you do have patients that that you're doing all those that you're make you rule out pseudo resistant hypertension they you they have resistant hypertension is there anything else that goes along like clinical cues that this person might have primary hyperaldosteronism or an, an endocrine cause of of their hypertension that's a good question so your differential diagnosis for resistant hypertension is medication non adherence uh, alcohol uh, renal insufficiency sleep apnea and mineralocorticoid excess. Now, uh, some of those are hard to, to, to diagnose, right? But primary aldosteronism is easy to diagnose, and 20% of people with resistant hypertension have primary aldosteronism. So there's a lot of tests in medicine we do for a 0.1% yield. This is a, you know, a, a one in five, and, and so this is really something that should be you should be thinking about every day in clinic. Uh, so I actually, even though, you know, we, we may want to, you, you, should, you should always think about all those things, uh, but screening for primary aldosteronism is easy, and it should be one of those things that you're doing routinely in people with resistant hypertension. Now, when we've diagnosed resistant hypertension, we made sure the person's not drinking a bunch. Actually, how much do they have to drink, do you think, to affect the blood pressure? Uh, I think it has to be... Um, a d- daily alcohol consumption. I think most people would say three drinks a day would be. So it's actually a pretty substantial amount. Uh, okay. It's not necessarily not necessarily enough to make one an alcoholic, but it's enough that people are drinking daily and drinking more than one drink a day. Okay. And 
when we start to screen for resistant hypertension, I'll tell you, and we talked about this a little bit on a prior show with Dr. Joel Toff, who's a nephrologist. Uh, I was saying uh, my resistance is I have a lot of patients on an ACE inhibitor, an ARB. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like, do I have to stop those medication? What's your What's your practice? How do you handle so it? So that is one of the great myths about uh, managing hypertension. You don't need to stop anything. You just screen them. Now, we do say that if people are already on spironolactone or a plerinone, which is a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, that it's preferable to stop those drugs. But I actually don't because, you know, there are very few things that cause a false positive screening test. You might get a false negative screening test as a result of that. But if you have a positive, if their renin is still low and their aldosterone is elevated, there's not anything else that causes that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I encourage people not to stop medicines, to screen broadly in people who have difficult-to-control hypertension of any sort. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I might um, not remember to say this later, uh, but if, at, if you if, – because of cost or whatever, if that's uh, not an option – then a therapeutic trial of spironolactone is always reasonable. And you will be amazed how well that works as add-on in re resistant hypertension uh, patients, proven by at least three studies now, the ASCOT study, the David Calhoun study, and the Pathway 2 study, excuse me, the Pathway 2 study. So three very large trials that show the efficacy of spironolactone in resistant hypertension. Now, some of those people do have primary aldosterone. Actually, some of them don't have primary aldosterone, but yet they still respond to spironolactone. And that's one of the things that before my career's over, I wanted to figure out why they actually <laughs> respond to it. But, but, you know, that is your magic weapon. And it doesn't take high doses. Start at 12 and a half milligrams a day. All right. Wait at least a month because it's a slow onset of effect. And then uh, you probably you most times you don't need more than 50 milligrams a day uh, to maximally treat somebody. So think about screening. And if you can't screen, think about at least trying uh, MR antagonist. And when you start when you start uh, the, the medication, how how long do you wait to check uh, renal function, make sure their potassium's not five and a half or six now? Right. So that's and that's one of the reasons why I always start at a low dose is okay. because you run into trouble when you start at 100 milligrams a day. Uh, if people have pre-existing renal function, renal dysfunction, then I check in a week. If they don't, I don't bother to check until the next time I see them six weeks later. All right. That's very helpful. And, and let's go back and, and talk about the, spe the specifics of the renin-aldosterone testing. Do you do that at a certain time of day? Is it, does it have to be in the morning? Right. Uh, so it can be random. What we, we don't wa want people to do is uh, test in the hospital in people laying in a bed. <laughs> so in the clinic, ambulatory patients... Uh, it's it's uh, preferred to do in the morning, but I think you know you do just do it whenever. Um, I usually check uh, uh, electrolytes at the same time because one of the uh, the factors is that hypokalemia can lower aldosterone production. Uh, so I usually check renin and aldosterone and a potassium at the same time. Then I can interpret the study. Now, uh, uh, there's a lot written about ratios. Uh, I personally don't calculate ratios. 
And uh, many of you uh, may be aware that the renin assays, the plasma renin activity assays, are going away pretty soon because the manufacturers are no longer making those kits. They're very laborious. Uh, instead, there'll be a direct immunoassay for renin itself. Currently, you, you actually measure angiotensin 1 that's generated from plasma by the action of renin. And so the immunoassay is actually for angiotensin 1. It's very difficult and very time-consuming. Now they just assay the renin. Um, and the, it's roughly a factor of 10 difference. So where I would call a suppressed plasma renin activity of less than 1 nanogram per mil per hour, a suppressed, a suppressed direct renin is less than 10. It's a factor of 10, less than 10 uh, nanograms per mil. So that's all you need to remember. Less than okay. 10 is suppressed. Don't calculate ratios. And, you know, if someone has a suppressed renin, what should their aldosterone be? It should be zero, right? It should be suppressed. If it's not then something fishy is going on. The higher it is, the more likely your diagnosis. The current endocrine society guidelines say that if someone's hypokalemic has a completely suppressed renin and an aldosterone above 20 nanograms per deciliter, you don't even need to do confirmatory testing because really nothing else causes that. Mm-hmm. Um, in people who have equivocal levels, we go to a, a, a secondary test, but now that's when they should go to the endocrinologist. So in terms of parsing out the duties... The internist's job is to to suspect and screen, um, and then if they have a positive screen, that's where the endocrinologist should get involved. What would be an aldosterone level that gets you curious? Should we we should think of is it fourteen or fifteen? That range? yeah. So I think above fifteen is almost certain. Uh, between ten and fifteen is equivocal. Uh, values less than ten can still be primary aldosteronism because you know hormones are secreted. Uh, non-uniformly. So you might be just catching someone in a trough. And if you get a false negative and your index of suspicion is high enough, uh, then you should repeat screening. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, this is why I always measure potassium. So if someone has a potassium of 2.9, an aldosterone of 12, and a suppressed renin, that's primary aldo in spades. Uh Uh, But uh, even though it it may seem that it's not so high, it should be undetectable. And so this is a sort of blunting of the effect. People who are on multiple medications can have a renin that's not quite suppressed, but an aldosterone of 60. And that's also probably primary aldosteronism. And I probably should have uh, done this for the audience up front. So let's say let's say that I don't fully remember the entire pathway. Can you just uh, briefly go through the renin aldosterone system and like what what affects what and and right. It'll help people interpret the test that you're that we're talking right. about. Right. Okay. Here. So um, uh, with volume expansion. Renin becomes uh, re- the kidney senses that renin is. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the kidney senses that your volume expanded stops making renin, and then um, uh, you stop making aldosterone uh, as well. So then, when your volume depleted, then the kidney senses that starts making renin. Renin converts angiotensin one to angiotensin. Sorry, angiotensinogen to angiotensin one. The converting enzyme converts it to angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 is both a vasoconstrictor and it also acts directly on the adrenal gland to stimulate aldosterone production. The other major regulator of aldosterone is potassium. So independent of the renin-angiotensin axis, if you're hyperkalemic, that will stimulate aldosterone production. And conversely, if you're hypokalemic, that will lower aldosterone production. Now, most drugs that we use to treat hypertension are either vasodilators or diuretics. 
and they either vasodilate or volume deplete you, and that will raise your renin. So that's why I say when you're on multiple medications, if the renin is low, okay, then you can interpret the results of the screening test. And high aldosterone is going to cause you to secrete potassium and, and get rid of it in the urine, so your potassium levels will be low. And what is a what is a, a low potassium that should make us, in a hypertensive patient, what level of potassium might make us think? Is it 3.5 or less? Yeah. So uh, it turns out that about 60% of patients with primary aldosteronism have a normal potassium. So a normal potassium does not rule out the condition by any means. Okay. Um, it's just that the more uh, severe patients and the ones who probably have uh, an aldosterone-producing adenoma that will require intense evaluation and surgical resection at a center of excellence uh, where they can do adrenal venous sampling and those other procedures, um, That uh, that that's any degree of hypokalemia. So, you know, okay. if your lab's normal is three point, it's any degree of hypokalemia. But really, hypokalemia depends a lot on your diet and uh, what other medications you're taking. Uh, one of the tip-offs to primary aldo is when people get hypokalemic on a small dose of a thiazide. That's not typical. People don't typically get hypokalemic on 12 and a half of hydrochlorothiazide. So if somebody does, that's also a flag to think about primary aldo. I, I think I'd like to point out to the audience, so I, I'm going to have to go re-examine my panel because I, I have a fair amount of patients on 12.5 or 25 of hydrochlorothiazide or, or they're on chlorthaldone and, and they, they need potassium supplementation with that. So those are patients that potentially could have primary hyperaldo. Yeah. Now, chlorthalidone is much worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's much worse at sucking the potassium out sure. of you. But uh, but with the those um, those 12 and a half, six and a quarter of hydrochlorothiazide, that really shouldn't do it. Yeah. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. Is are there any other tests? Uh, any other tests that you that you utilize? That so, if we have someone that we think has resistant hypertension, we just talked about the hyperaldosteronism. Anything else we should check? We should check. I know your talk. You you get into Cushing's a little bit and right, right. So if there's also glucose intolerance, osteoporosis. Uh, unexplained weight gain that's, you know, sort of new onset or disproportionate to what people's trajectory are, you should think about hypercortisolism. Uh, you know, that can be, if, if people have overt Cushing's, it's usually p pretty easy to diagnose, but mild Cushing's is very difficult to diagnose. Um, and, you know, that may require referral to an endocrinologist. But um, I think that my main point is that uh, you know, as you go through the um, the differential of, of resistant hypertension, you know, people who you know were taking other medicines, you know, that are taking the, you know, their pharmacy tells you that their their scripts are being filled and so on, uh, that uh, you've gone through and you don't really have a reason for it, you know, an endocrine cause should be really up on your list. Which other endocrine causes... Which other endocrine causes should we check for? I mean, without the clinical history that's suggestive for pheochromocytoma, is it even worth checking like plasma menetafrins, urine, and, and how do you recommend approaching yeah, that? Yeah, I generally don't recommend that people do that in the absence of a compelling reason. So the the, the compelling feature of these paroxysms of, of sweating and palpitations, uh, very elevated blood pressures, 
you know, uh, but but the flip side is that people do get tested, and a lot of people with um, hypertension, sleep apnea, resistant hypertension will have slightly elevated metanephrines, uh, particularly the plasma normetanephrine, where it's 1.2 to 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. And I think my main message on that is they don't have a pheochromocytoma, or at least if they do, it's not causing their symptoms. Because uh, with pheochromocytomas, you only get symptoms and you only get hypertension when the metanephrines are very clearly elevated, three to ten times normal. So, uh, so if something is less than twice the upper limit of normal, I uh, usually dismiss it. The only the only in- exception to that is people who have uh, genetic predisposing diseases like von Hippel-Lindau or MEN2, uh, then we have to take those seriously. Uh, but uh, but I, I generally don't advise people do that unless they have uh, a reason to screen a, a kind of a history. And so a couple of the other things, uh, people who come into the young people with unexplained heart failure, uh, you should think about pheochromocytoma. Incidental adrenal nodules that are discovered on CT scans that aren't lipid-rich, that don't have the imaging characteristics of a cortical nodule, those can be a pheochromocytoma. And even though a patient may be asymptomatic, uh, they will usually have clearly abnormal laboratory findings and because FIOs are sort of time bombs that, you know, we usually recommend resection of those on diagnosis, even if people aren't symptomatic. With, you mentioned imaging and incidentalomas. Is, is imaging, should that be part of our standard workup for resistant hypertension in any way? Yeah, absolutely not. I think, uh, you know, we, we have a rule in endocrinology. It's biochemistry before anatomy. You don't go on imaging before you have a biochemical diagnosis. And the reason is that uh, between 1% to 9% of human beings, uh, myself included, uh, have uh, an adrenal nodule or two uh, that we don't even know about. And it's even worse for thyroid nodules. So you don't go looking for things until you know they're there because you'll find something and it'll be red herrings. I mean, this is what we struggle with in primary aldosteronism. You know, people do a CT scan, and many times the nodule you see is not what's causing the primary aldosteronism, and we have to sort that out with special testing. But again, that's that's done at the specialized centers where, where we get involved. If you see someone with bilateral adrenal hyperplasia or enlargement, is that does that cause hyperaldosteronism? Is that something, or am I... Well, it can. It's um, uh, when uh, so there are people who have what we call macronodular hyperplasia of the adrenal glands, uh, multiple large nodules, two centimeters or larger. I tell people they have a goiter of the adrenal gland, <laughs> uh, and uh, and those usually cause hypercortisolism. They can cause primary aldosteronism, but it's pretty rare. Same is true with adrenal cancers. A rare adrenal cancer will cause hyperaldosteronism, but it's usually cortisol excess. And the other thing you've got that, um, well, to get a little more complicated, the larger single adrenal tumors can make both aldosterone and cortisol. And, um, And actually, it turns out that even the small adrenal tumors probably make a little bit of cortisol, but it's buried in the noise. We're actually trying to use that now uh, in a research study to try to develop better diagnostic techniques for primary aldosteronism to take advantage of the fact that the cells are co-producing aldosterone and cortisol and making certain hybrid steroids that we might be able to develop blood tests to expedite the workup. Uh, so I think this is of theoretical interest, but but for the larger tumors, the cortisol, 
cortisol production can be clinically significant. So if you see someone with mild primary aldosteronism and you do happen to get a CT scan and they have a three or four centimeter adrenal tumor, something's fishy there. And you should do a dexamethasone suppression test and a few other things and the endocrinologist should get involved because we sort of, uh, cortisol trumps aldosterone in the in the evaluation because usually, uh, you know, in aldosterone, um, you can't really tell based on imaging where it's coming from. But with cortisol, you can. It's always the larger tumors that are making more. I, I know we have a couple minutes left here. I wanted to make sure that we teach the audience how to screen for Cushing's. And, and also I wanted to ask if, let, let's say, a lot of our patients have prediabetes or diabetes. They also have high blood pressure. So it might be hard to suss out like who has, and, and maybe they have stretch marks, but maybe not the kind you see in a textbook right. for Cushing's. So uh, how do we suss that out? And should we be doing a dexamethasone suppression test or urine cortisol and et cetera? Yeah, this is the $64,000 question. A lot of people have asked me this. And uh, so, you know, there are studies, particularly a really good one from Brazil, where they found that uh, the prevalence of overt Cushing, not even mild Cushing, overt Cushing's in uncontrolled diabetics was about 3%. So it should be something that's on your mind uh, when, you know, again, particularly when there's been a recent change in somebody's disease trajectory. Um, so I look for some of the more specific findings. And what, uh, so one of those is uh, skin thinning, uh, dermal atrophy, bruising, things like that. Because remember, Cortisol is a catabolic hormone. It breaks down skin, bone, and muscle. And those are the things that are the specific findings for Cushing's as opposed to simply weight gain or glucose intolerance. So when I see dermal atrophy, I see disproportionate supraclavicular fat pads and head and neck fat accumulation, facial plethora, muscle weakness, uh, osteoporosis in an obese person. Those are red flags to screen for Cushing's. Um, the mild people, boy, it's a tough one. But again, I think I look more for recent changes um, uh, on that. Now, you know, when you suspect somebody has overt Cushing's, it really doesn't matter how you screen them because they'll, they'll all be positive, uh, most likely. When people have mild Cushing's or if you're screening because they had a CT scan and had an um, incidentally discovered adrenal tumor. So when you're thinking about adrenal Cushing's, then the overnight dexamethasone suppression test is the most sensitive. There are false positives, but there aren't as many false negatives uh, with that. Most people with adrenal Cushing's will have a normal 24-hour urinary-free cortisol. And can you tell people how the dexamethasone suppression, what dose to give, and, and how logistically that's handled for yes. the patient? So they take a milligram of dexamethasone between 11 o'clock and midnight, and then they come in in the morning by 8.30, and they get a serum cortisol measured. Um, they don't have to fast, but it just has to be early in the morning. Um, some people measure dexamethasone levels or ACTH to make sure that the patient took the dexamethasone. I generally don't do that the first time around, but if I get a really screwy result and I want to repeat the test, then I usually do that. And and then you said there's the urine, uh, 24-hour urine cortisol? Correct. There's 24-hour urinary-free cortisol. The problem with that is that our methodology has changed over the years uh, from uh, colorimetric then to uh, to uh, uh, HPLC with ultraviolet absorbance to mass spectrometry 
and now we do tandem mass spectrometry, and it turns out that the normal range is much lower than when I was a fellow, and it's because the older assays, there was cross-reactivity with cortisol metabolites. Now there's not, and so now I think we're not really sure what what uh, the cutoff is for Cushing's. It's like the studies need to be redone exactly. to recalibrate Absolutely, test. yes. And we really have no idea what normal and abnormal is. So all that work that was done at the NIH was not using these methods. And so it's really you can't use those values. So I think now we're sort of stuck. But I think, again, the, the you know, Cushing's is a clinical diagnosis. The laboratory findings are supporting our clinical suspicion, all right? And and I think people obsess too much about lab tests. So we say that on a dexamethasone suppression test, the uh, it should be less than 1.8 micrograms per deciliter, which is 50 nanomoles per liter. So what if it's 1.9 or 1.7? Does that make a difference? No, it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> that kind of gives you an assessment of how the patient responds to that. And if your index of suspicion is high, then you can't dismiss it. When your index of suspicion is low, uh, then it's reassuring. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And then we usually try to then pair that with uh, a secondary test uh, geared to the, uh, the, the type of Cushing's you think that the patient has uh, where, you, uh, where you further interrogate that axis. Um, and then sometimes you just have to follow them longitudinally and do serial testing until you can determine what's happening with their overall disease trajectory. Well, I, I think we're out of time here. I just wanted to try to recap. So the, the big ones that we talked about were primary aldosterone, hyperaldosteronism and Cushing's and then resistant hypertension. So can you give us just some take-home points for our primary care audience that you want them to remember? Right. So, yeah, always remember your five main causes of resistant hypertension. Don't be afraid to screen for primary aldosteronism, and you don't need to stop anything to screen for that. When you're thinking of Cushing's, think about the catabolic findings rather than just the obesity and the metabolic findings. And for a pheochromocytoma, the labs have to be very abnormal. Slight abnormalities are not uh, indicative of disease. Thank you so much. This was awesome. My pleasure. And we're back. Uh, Stuart, Paul. Hi, how you doing? Hi, we're we're time traveling. You guys weren't with me in Austin, but uh, you've heard... You've heard my conversation with Dr. Aukis. I did. Stuart, any, anything you wanted to point out for the audience or anything that struck you as... Well, the first thing that struck me was uh, where he was talking about the incidence of hypokalemia with low-dosage hydrochlorothiazide that we need to consider, at least in the back of our minds, that this could be an undiagnosed case of primary hyperaldosteronism. Had, had you considered that before? No, that's why I was saying I had to go dig through my panel and find out which patients, you know, might might benefit from that. And I bet you haven't done that yet. Well, I I did I did see a patient today that I considered. Yeah. <laughs> I talked to you guys about it in pre-recording. I was I have uh, no recollection of this that, conversation. I don't, I don't either actually. I think he's I think he was talking to himself. Actually, Paul, do you do you want to add anything in? Well, I just I, the I mean the thing that really struck me was the him advocating for really just testing I think virtually all patients for pheochromocytoma if I understood his point right. So that's it's almost yeah, always all, all patients. No, I I don't think you were paying attention, Paul. Well, then I I'm not really sure what you guys talked about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you learned a lot. So, well, yes. that, no, he, that actually begs a an interesting point. The fact that uh, in residency we, we always have these 
interesting, uh, well, maybe histories that are, are somewhat suggestive of pheochromocytoma. I think a lot of that's because in the back of our head, we're, we're asking a lot of leading questions, or we don't understand the pathophysiology of what's leading to uh, the patient's uh, presentation in the first place. Um, oftentimes what I get with these patients are intermittent history episodes, discrete episodes, sometimes at night of palpitations, shortness of breath, a little bit of sweating. And one thing that we tend to undiagnose or underdiagnose in cases like that is not necessarily a pheochromocytoma. You might check uh, norm, norm metanephrines, um, and uh, they might be slightly elevated. And one thing I've always talked with the residents about is to consider, at least in the back of your head, that this could be an undiagnosed case of sleep apnea. You know, these patients go to sleep three to four hours, are about to die, essentially, and their body throws out a bunch of adrenal cortical steroids and says, please wake up so you don't die. And so they wake up, they get this burst of energy, bam, they're up, they, blood pressure's way up, they're having some palpitations, maybe a, a little bit of a headache, and, but hey, they've got that energy, which is short-lived, goes away, blood pressure comes down, and then you say, hey, is this a pheochromocytoma? No, it's probably a sleep apnea. It's BMI is 55. Well, I, yeah, I have not diagnosed a pheochromocytoma, but I have seen patients with like these just above the upper limit of normal right. plasma metanephrines. And w- I think the big point there is unless they're two or three times the upper limit normal, and usually it's going to be even more than that, that you really shouldn't get excited about right. this. Well, e- even he said that if it's just a little bit over the upper limit of normal, y- you really do need to think about sleep apnea. And in my training, it's, you know, I had a, an attending once who told me that everyone's allowed to diagnose exactly one PHEO in their career. And so I, I haven't actually gotten <laughs> to that point yet. I'm not sure if that's statistically validated, but it feels right. And, and in all seriousness, I thought I'd really the, the takeaway point for me was the, this kind of the surprising prevalence probably of hyperaldo as a driver of, of resistant or secondary hypertension. I know you guys spent some time right. talking about that, and I, I found that conversation very helpful. And Dr. Aukis, the whole reason that, that he wanted to talk to me was because he really wanted to get that information out there to the primary care audience. And that's where you'll notice when he was going through his points, he stopped and he would kind of stop at the point where he said, and at this point, you should kick it to the specialist. So once you make that, you, you get the high aldosterone, you get the suppressed renin, that's when you should be sending that person off to this, the endocrinologist, the specialist for further evaluation uh, to kind of figure out what's going to be the final treatment plan there. Well, and I think you made a, a solid point, Paul, in pre-recording when you were talking about that patient that you were staffing out with one of your residents. And I think this is this is common. If you don't mind sharing with, with us that, I think it's it's an important point to highlight here. Yeah, happy to. It was a patient I saw in a, in a residency clinic who was just persistently hypertensive, just swore up and down that they were adherent, and I believed them. And it's just, it's it sort of took a fresh pair of eyes. If you just look through their their basic med, at every time we checked, they were persistently hypokalemic. And I, I think that two things. I think it's important to obviously think about um, hyperaldo in that patient population, but also just have a high suspicion any case because you don't always see hypokalemia mm-hmm. necessarily. In fact, I, I can't remember the number, but there's a surprising amount of patients who have basically a, a quote, normal uh, potassium and still actually have hyperaldo. So don't you don't have to wait for it to right. suspect it, but if it's there, you should for sure be thinking of it. Did you guys check a renin to aldo ratio on that patient? We did. We did. And, and, and the renin was suppressed, and the aldo was, was wildly elevated. So it was, it's very suggestive. So and, then, and then we, we made the referral. Right. Now, we, we did talk a lot of pathophysiology and tests, testing and numbers in this. So I will definitely put all that into the show notes, and I'll put some links if I, as I'm making the show notes, if I find a helpful, uh, any helpful sites kind of summarizing, at least in visual form, the pathophysiology. So make sure you take a look at the show notes because I understand it can be hard to kind of think about these things uh, without visualizing them in some regards. 
unless you guys have anything else, uh, I think that's good. And we have more interviews with Ace coming up for the next few weeks. We might we might put in a couple other random shows in there, so it's not all just endocrine. But we do have several more interviews from Ace 2017 that we'll be releasing in the next few weeks here. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our brand new monthly video newsletter where we summarize the key tools, tips, and tricks that we learned this month for your practice. Finally, did you release one for April already? Sure did, Stuart. You must not be checking your email. I do once a week. I recorded it live from my backup podcast fort, which is my closet, and uh, it was great. <laughs> and that is not a joke. Anyway, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And I remain Paul Williams. Oh, hi, Paul. How you doing? <laughs> Good night. Good night.